You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. If you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. In it, I laid a foundation not only for this series, but also unpacked a theology of suffering. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to build upon uh, that foundation that we laid last week. We're going to look at some different topics some different aspects, some different storms that we might encounter in this life, even as Christians. And today, we're going to look at the topic of depression. Great. I'm glad I came to church. <laughs> depression, it's important. Three things today, if you're taking notes, three things today that will help you. Because of God's great love toward us in Jesus Christ, because of God's great love toward you and his son, Jesus Christ, we mustn't deny, downplay, nor be defined by depression. Three things. We must not deny, downplay, nor should our lives be defined by depression. Now, up front, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. One, I'm approaching this topic today as a pastor. And so we're going to look at the Bible, and we're going to see how the Bible actually gives us a really thick definition and understanding of depression, not like maybe the thin definitions that can be offered in the world today. Like when I show up and say, hey man, I'm feeling a little bit depressed on this Monday morning because the Cowboys lost again, you know, like not a thin definition of depression, not a thin understanding of it. Even with all the emphasis and talk about mental health in our culture today, any form of sadness and sorrow could be labeled as depression. The Bible, let us do that. It's going to give us a thick definition and understanding of depression. So I'm approaching this topic pastorally and theologically from the Bible. And then the second thing is that part of this sermon this morning are going to be for those of you who don't suffer from depression. And then there will be other parts, particularly toward the end, that will be for those of you who do. In other words, we're a body. We're a body. Let's pray. God, would you help us this morning as we open up your word, as we consider the reality of suffering from deep sorrow and deep sadness, even numbness at times. We pray that you would help us, that you would show us the great hope and the great joy that is available to us in Jesus Christ, what great hope we have in the person of Christ. And so pray that your spirit would come, would move, would speak to us, would encourage us. Would you help me this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, someone asked me earlier this morning, they said, hey, did you decide to start with depression because it's Labor Day weekend and the people who are going to be there are the people that didn't make any plans for Labor Day weekend? And I said, no, I'm starting with the topic of depression because it's Labor Day weekend and it's the opening season of college football and some of your teams might have lost yesterday. No, all kidding aside, we're starting with depression because it's a topic that has been ignored by the church. It's a topic that isn't talked about much in the church. In fact, when it is talked about in the church, it can often be viewed as scandalous to be depressed or sinful to be depressed. Now, I want you to know that it's neither. It's neither scandalous, and it is certainly not sinful to live with depression. Depression, though it might be ignored in the church, is not ignored in the world, and it's certainly not ignored in the Bible. Let's start with depression in our world today. There are many people who are living with depression. The World Health Organization estimates that 322 million people worldwide live with depression. That's a lot of people. In 2019, pre-pandemic, Barna did some research, and Barna's research shows that 40% 
of adults in the United States say that depression impacts their most important relationships. So, in other words, even if you aren't living with depression, the odds are high that you might be living with someone who is living with depression. Depression is real in our world. No one is immune to it. On this side of heaven, there's no unsubscribe button from the dark clouds of depression. There are no saints who are immune to it. People who struggle with depression don't struggle with depression because they're weak in their faith or they're spiritually immature. Uh, Lifeway Research in 2018 tells us that one in four pastors live with depression. One in four pastors. 25% of pastors live with depression. No one is immune to the dark clouds of depression in this life. There are no heroes in the faith that are immune to depression. Many people know Charles Spurgeon. Many people know Charles Spurgeon as a hero in the faith. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. His sermons and his ministry led to a great awakening and revival. And still to this day, people quote Spurgeon and read Spurgeon and use Spurgeon's sermons as a source of strength in their life. But what a lot of people don't know is that Spurgeon lived most of his life and just about all of his ministry in the dark clouds of depression. Spurgeon spoke openly about his depression. He preached about it regularly. And he gave us some really good categories to think biblically about depression. We'll talk about those later in the message. But it wasn't just Spurgeon. There were many, many others. I'm going to just mention a few, but there are many heroes in the faith who have gone before us who lived with depression. The great reformer Martin Luther lived with depression. It's well documented that Luther struggled with the dark clouds of depression. He referred to his experience as suffering from, he quotes, he says, a dire plague of sorrow on the soul. was the way Martin Luther spoke about his battle with depression. And that says a lot, right? Because if you know much about Luther, uh, Luther lived and ministered through the bubonic plague in the 1500s, where people were literally leaving the city because thousands were dying from the Black Plague, the Black Death, they called it. And Luther stayed and he ministered to people in the, who were suffering and dying from a plague that says a lot for Luther to speak of his own depression and say that it was like a dire plague of sorrow on his soul. Most importantly, though, the Bible does not ignore depression. We have stories in our sacred text of, jo- of Jacob's limp, of jo- Joseph's tears, of Job's agonies. We have David's psalms, which we'll open in a moment. We have Elijah's desire to die, Jeremiah's weeping. We have the entire book of Lamentations. We have Paul's thorn in the flesh and his sorrow and agony and suffering. And most importantly, we have our Lord Jesus, his misery in Gethsemane. See, depression is real. It's a real storm that all of us in this room have found ourselves near. And it's a real storm that many of our brothers and sisters, some of you even here today, are living with. And so, so we must not deny it. We must not deny that depression is a real problem, number one. Number two, we mustn't downplay the complexity of depression. So we must not deny it, but we also must not oversimplify depression. We must understand that there's a complexity to it. The scriptures won't allow us to downplay the complexity of depression either. There's a complexity in both the source and the symptoms of depression, If we're going to be good family, church, to those who suffer from depression, we must understand the complexity of the storm of depression. 
Let's start with the sources. There's the complexity of sources. Spurgeon taught that depression, or as he called it, the disease of melancholy. That sounds very Spurgeon-esque. The disease of melancholy, Spurgeon says, has three sources. He said it could be spiritual, so there's spiritual depression. Number two, he said it could be circumstantial, circumstantial depression. Or three, Spurgeon, by the end of his life and ministry, said that it could be biological biological depression. Let's understand these three categories. First, spiritual depression. What is that? What is spiritual depression? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a physician turned preacher-pastor, often preached many, many sermons on spiritual depression. It's a real thing that we can encounter in this life that's unique to followers of Jesus. Spiritual depression. He says that it's to feel deserted or abandoned by God. Spiritual depression to feel deserted or abandoned by God, to live, with, to live a life that feels doused with doubt. Spiritual depression. Some of you know this feeling. Or spiritual depression could be the fear of being deserted by God because of our sin. It's to feel consumed with condemnation, to feel abandoned and deserted by God because of the depths of our sin. And we see this in the Psalms. We have Psalm 88. We have Psalm 77. We have Psalm 13. We have Psalm 42. We have Psalm 51, where David says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Oh God, he feels so consumed by his sin. We have it in Psalm 32, where David says that his bones are wasting away as God's hand is heavy upon him. It can be to live a life that is doused with doubt or that is consumed with condemnation. Some of you know this feeling, the deep despair and sorrow of feeling plunged into the depths of doubt and sin and God seeming absent. He's nowhere to be found. Spiritual depression. Spurgeon says the second category, circumstantial depression. He says it's, it's to have our soul stained or scarred with sorrow. For your soul to be stained or scarred with sorrow due to an instance of suffering or an encounter with evil in this life. This is real. This was the source, at least at the beginning, of Charles Spurgeon's depression. Um, Spurgeon, when he was uh, just barely into his 20s, started to pastor a church in England that thousands of people attended. Thousands and thousands of people attended his church. He's early in his 20s. He is gifted, and God is using him in mighty ways. He's newly married. He has a two-month-old baby, and he's preaching to a church full of thousands of people, proclaiming the good news of God's great love through Jesus Christ for sinners. And as he calls it, a prankster pulls a fire alarm. Prankster pulls his fire alarm, and thousands of people begin to try and find their way out of a building, and in all of this, many, many people are seriously injured as, as, as dozens are trampled, and several people lost their life that day. And Spurgeon talks about this, and the, the source of, of Spurgeon's sorrow, the source of his depression, was not that this sort of thing could happen, right? We all know that these sorts of things can happen. We live in a world of evil. But, it, but the source of his sorrow was that this prankster's evil schemes that day passed through the hands of a sovereign and loving God. That was the source of his sorrow. God, how could you allow this to happen? How could this be good? These people losing their life, many of them very young, these people permanently injured. You know, the sadness of that day 
stayed with Spurgeon. He struggled to overcome the sorrow. Early on, he was even put on suicide watch for weeks. He could hardly preach at times. The sadness stained his soul. And some of you know this state very well. You carry with you scars from sufferings that you've encountered, scars from evil that you've experienced. And that sorrow can be easily triggered at any moment. That the, the clouds of that sorrow can roll into your life. Tears can regularly flow months, years, even decades later. Circumstantial depression. And then finally, biological. What Spurgeon called biological depression, or what we might today call clinical depression, is to have our bodies fail us due to our fallen nature, due to our fallen state. To feel as if, if our brains are broken. Maybe you feel that way. Or our hormones in our body aren't doing what they're supposed to do. In 1885, Spurgeon talked about this. After many years of preaching about sorrow and counseling those with depression, he came to believe that biological depression ought to be honored in the same way that we would think about other physical ailments. He says, in the same way that we would think about a stroke. We would never say to someone, oh, I'm feeling a bit of a stroke today. No, this is a serious bodily issue and problem. And so we shouldn't talk about depression that way. I'm feeling a bit depressed. No. In the same way that today we would understand that the cells of our body can get out of whack and could uh, produce cancer in us, our brains and our uh, chemistry and our hormones can get out of whack, and all of a sudden we are, for no reason at all, no circumstance, no doubt, no sin, plunged deep into the depths of melancholy. Spurgeon said this in 1885 in a sermon that he preached titled, The Cause and Cure of the Wounded Spirit. He said, there's such a thing as an infirmity of mind, a real disease that is not imaginary, and it is the business of a physician more than of a pastor or a theologian. Three sources of depression. And if we want to love well, if we want to be a church family that points other people to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all things, we must not downplay the complexity of depression. Not only is depression complex in source, but also in symptom. Listen to what Martin Luther, uh, how he described his depression. He says this, he says, it was always marked by the same features, a feeling of profound aloneness, a sense that God was signaling him out for suffering, a loss of faith that God is good, and four, a resulting inward self-reliance, that I have to save myself, but I know that I don't possess the strength to do it. But what he said is, he says, though these symptoms were the same every time, they never came the same way. They were always swirled together in some strange cocktail of sorrow and aloneness, Luther said. There's complexity to the symptoms of depression. Yet there are also other people who will tell you that their depression isn't really about a feeling of sorrow or sadness. It's not an emotion. It's not even an overwhelming state of emotion. They would say it's more like an anti-feeling. It's, it's less of a mood, and it's more of a state, this, uh, this state of numbness, where I really can't feel anything at all. It's an anti-feeling. See, there's a complexity to depression, and we must learn to honor that and not to thin out the real sufferings of others, oversimplify other people's pain. I want you to know that all of this is evident in the Bible, the complexity both in source and in symptom. In fact, if you have your Bible, I want you to open with me to the Psalms. Open with me to the Psalms. The Psalms are a guide for God's people to know God's joy 
in the storm of depression. The Psalms, you can think of them this way. The Psalms are like a playlist that we are to play when we find ourselves in the storm. It's like you have your workout playlist, you know, that you play when you hit the gym, or you have your road trip playlist, or you have your uh, whatever, uh, you know, the woohoo, the kids are finally in bed playlist, whatever it might be. The Psalms are a playlist that we ought to play when we find ourselves in the storm. They, they, teach, they teach us what to do when we are feeling uh, depression or when we aren't feeling anything at all. I want to look at a few examples. First, let's look at Psalm 13. Turn with me to Psalm 13. While you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background on the Psalms. Um, this is helpful. If maybe you're new to the Bible, I want you to understand the Psalms a little bit. Um, in the Bible, there's a, there's a man named King David. Maybe you've heard about him. Uh, David and Goliath. There's a man named King David. David wrote many of the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. David wrote 74 of them. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. David was a man full of faith. He was a man who was chosen by God, anointed by God, who was mightily blessed by God. He was the prototype of Israel's kings. In fact, we're told that Jesus, the Messiah, comes in the line of David, uh, that, that he is the greater David. David was a man who, who had an important role to play in God's story of redemption. Yet David was a man whose life was marked by the dark clouds of depression. David wrote 74 of the Psalms. There's 150 total. Um, of the 150 Psalms, 67 of the Psalms are, are Psalms of lament. Okay, you can think of it this way. If maybe some Psalms are songs or poems of orientation, you could think about Psalm 103. It's a Psalm of orientation, right? Many of you know Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord and forget not his benefits. And the psalmist goes on. It's a psalm of orientation. I, I see God clearly and I'm acknowledging who he is. I'm oriented to God. The 67 psalms of lament, which David wrote many of, are psalms of disorientation. They, they are tools for us when we don't know where God is. When I'm in the storm and I can't see, and I can't feel, and I can't think, and I'm lost or abandoned. It's a psalm of disorientation. And so David wrote many of these, particularly when he was in the disorientation of depression. Let's look at Psalm 13. I want to read verses 1 through 4. Listen to his words. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. See, what we have here might be stunning to some of you who grew up in a performative church culture. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, you kind of got to, kind of got to pretend you're okay all the time. And most importantly, you better pretend you're okay with God. This would be stunning to you, what David just said here in the scriptures. What Psalm 13 does is it gives us permission to question God to God. <laughs> to question God to God. It's okay to not be okay with God. 
It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be depressed with God, to say to God, God, why am I so sad? Why am I so empty? Why do I feel so alone when I am surrounded by people who love me? God, why will you light up my eyes? Where are you? Look at Psalm 77. Flip over there to me. Uh, Flip over there with me. Psalm 77. Let's look at another psalm of disorientation. A psalm of lament. Psalm 77. Starting in verse 3. The psalmist says, When I remember God, I moan. Hmm. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. It's as if if all the spiritual practices that are supposed to help us cheer up buttercup aren't working. Hmm. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I can't speak. I can't sleep. I can't speak. People keep asking me what's wrong. I don't know what to say. I I can't say anything. Verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Psalm 77, it acknowledges that sometimes in the dark clouds of deep depression, even our attempts to seek God only compound our sorrow. In fact, in other words, Even seeking after God in our depression can make us more depressed. And some of you know that. You've been there. It's not as simplistic as, hey, friend, just read your Bible. What happens when reading the Bible makes it worse? That's what the psalmist is saying. Look at Psalm 42. Flip over there with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. We'll look at verse 1 through 3 and then verse 5. Another psalm of David. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? In other words, he's saying I can't sleep. (laughs) I can't eat. I'm eating my tears. That's my reality. Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? In other words, he's questioning his depression. like, there's no reason for it. Like, why am I so sorrowful? Why am I so sad? I don't know. I'm trapped in this storm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Do you see the psalmist here trying to find his way back to God in the midst of the disorientation? Imagine the image that he gives us in verse 1. Some of you guys love that song from the 90s, As the Deer. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you guys know that song. That's your jam. That song, that song was written to the completely wrong tune. <laughs> the wrong tune to that song. This song is sad. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. This isn't just a thirsty deer who needs a drink, this is an exhausted deer. At the, end of its, at the end of all of its strength, its heart is pounding, panting. God, where are you? I've got nothing left. I need you. 
Where is he? See, church family, what we have in these three examples in, this, in these psalms, this is lament. This is lament. It's prayer in pain. Prayer in real pain. It doesn't hide. It doesn't stuff. It doesn't dismiss. It doesn't deny. It doesn't downplay the real sorrows or sadness or numbness that can come in this life. No, it is lament. It's to cry to God, to acknowledge where I truly and really am, to confess it and to bring it to a sovereign God and appeal his promises and his character. See, it's to turn to God, not from God. And one of the mistakes that we've made in the church is by not talking about things like this is that people actually go away from God to other sources in their times of need rather than coming to God. But the psalmist won't let us do that. The psalmist invite us to learn the gift of lament. Lament is the vehicle by which we access God's presence. It's the vehicle by which we know God's joy in the storm of depression. I want to define joy for you. Joy is not a feeling. There's a, there's a show on Netflix. I forget the name of it, but it's about the lady who helps you declutter your house. Some of you know what I'm talking about. What's her name? Help me out. What is it? Marie Kondo. Yeah, yeah. And she talks about joy as if it's a spark. She says, find your joy. If it doesn't give you joy, get rid of it. I'm glad that my wife does not view joy that way because I would be gone. <laughs> I'd be out a long time ago. Joy is not a feeling. Um, happiness is a feeling. Uh, have you ever realized that happiness is not in the list of the fruit of the Spirit? But joy is. Joy is not a feeling. It is a presence that comes from a person. It is a presence that overcomes us. It comes from a person. In the Bible, joy is rooted in a person. It's a deep, endurable sense of delight that comes from knowing Yahweh as your God. See, joy is rooted in God and who he is, what he has done, how he has acted in the past, what he has promised in the future, and it always supersedes your circumstances. It's not a feeling. It's a reality of belonging to God. And lament is how we access joy in the midst of our circumstances. In other words, lament gets us to God, even if it starts off ugly and honest. It gets us going. It gets us going to God is what it does. I want you to know that all of these psalms that start off so ugly and honest, they all take a turn. They all take a turn. Each one of the psalmists accesses the great hope that is found in God, the joy that is in the person of God. Don't mishear me. That doesn't mean that you begin to lament and then your circumstances change. Your circumstances might not change, but lament, it's like a catapult that sends you toward God. It sends you Godward rather than away from God. It's, it's how you find the one who is the strong tower that the righteous run into and are safe in the midst of the storm rather than being capsized by its waves in despair. For the sake of time, I want to show you just one of these psalms, how they take a turn. They all do. You could go back and look at Psalm 42 and Psalm 13 and see how they start off ugly and honest and raw and real, and then they go Godward. But I want to show you it from Psalm 77. Look back at Psalm 77. We looked at the first part of the psalm. Now let's look at the back half, starting in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this 
to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Verse 15. You with your arm redeem your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Verse 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What is the psalmist doing here? What is he doing? Well, he's remembering. First, it says he's appealing, and then he's remembering, and he's recalling all that God has done. You see, lament can be like windshield wipers on the car when we're in the midst of the storm. It doesn't take the circumstances away, but it can, it can clear things up for you just a little bit. It's like the defrost button on the car. He remembers back to the artifacts of God's faithfulness, and he clings to them, and he points them out. In other words, he's preaching them even to himself while he's in the storm. He's remembering God's faithfulness to Jacob and to Joseph. Then he recalls the mighty salvation of God in the Exodus. He meditates on it. He ponders it. He tells himself. He preaches to himself of who God truly is. He puts his own doubts in the moment on trial in verse 13. He says, what God is like our God? In other words, he's saying, this is the reality of my circumstances, but where else do I have to turn? Where else do I have to go? What God is like our God? Who can do for me what my God can do? He remembers not just what God has done, but he remembers who God is and what he's like. He says he's holy and he's mighty. And in doing so, the psalmist is buoyed with joy. Access is deep and durable hope. Lament is God's gift to us. God invites us to come to him ugly and honest. Uh, in a way, to lament is to engage in intimacy with God. Have you ever thought of it that way? It's a way to be intimate with God. God, this is really, truly who I am and where I am and I need you. And I just want to say this, if the psalmist on that side of the cross can do this, can, can be honest with God, and then point to the artifacts of God's faithfulness and love, access joy by them, how much more can we do that on this side of the cross? You see, we have the greatest artifact of God's love. We have the greatest artifact of God's faithfulness to look back to. Here's what that means for you if you're in the storm of depression. That means that when you feel abandoned by God, you can bring that to him. You can tell him that. God, I feel abandoned by you right now. You can be ugly and honest with God. You know why? Because Jesus is not just a savior for sinners, but he's a sympathetic high priest. In other words, if the greatest act of Jesus was our salvation, the second greatest act of Jesus for us is his great sympathy towards you and your suffering. You hear that? He's a sympathetic high priest. He gets it. In other words, Jesus knows this feeling too well. If you feel abandoned by God right now, Jesus knows this feeling so well you can turn to him. He gets it. Though he never doubted the Father, though he never sinned, Jesus Christ was abandoned and he was deserted on the cross. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken and abandoned in every way by God on the cross so that you could be eternally secure. That's his promise to you. The cross is the artifact of his love for you. He will not abandon you. 
you will not be lost, no matter how far away God might feel in your life right now, if you're struggling with depression, with spiritual depression, you will not be lost. No matter how distant he may feel in a moment, you belong to him and he is yours. You can recall what he has done. You can look back to Jesus and you can claim this truth as yours. What about those of you who have experienced circumstantial depression? Spurgeon called being so deeply wounded or having our souls stained with the sorrow of suffering and evil. When the waves of sorrow wash over you due to the sufferings that you've endured at the hands of sin and evil, you can also bring that to Jesus. Jesus knows this well too, doesn't he? Doesn't he get this? He was lashed. He was wounded by the evil schemes of men. He stood below the full blow of Satan's evil schemes, and he's a sympathetic Savior. He sweat blood for you. He shed tears for you. Your Savior was scarred for you, that you might find in him great comfort now and full healing in the future. He will wipe every tear from every eye. This is his promise to you. This is his promise to you. You can claim it. Remember him. Appeal to him, your wounded Savior. And what about if your body or your brain feels broken? What about you? Well, Jesus is there for you too. You can look back to his cross. You can see what he's done for you. You can remember that he will not forsake you. Boy, does Jesus know a thing or two about a broken body. His whole self was given for us. It was given as an offering. It was given as a ransom to set each of us free from the curse of sin and death. Though that in this life you might lose your strength, you might lose your will, you might lose all of your energy due to depression, you might lose your mind. Someone might say that to you, you've lost your mind. Jesus will not lose you. He will not. You can claim this promise that he gave his whole body for you and that he rose from the dead victoriously so that you might be raised in glory as well, that you might be one day healed and whole in his presence. This is his promise to you and you can claim it. You see, like the psalmist, we don't let our circumstances define us. Though they are real and we shouldn't deny them or downplay them, they don't define us. We can look back to the artifacts of our salvation, of Christ crucified and risen. We can remember all that he has done for us in Jesus. We can access what he gives us, his very presence by his spirit and his promises for our future. And in that, there is great joy in the storm. And that leads to my third and final point. We must not deny that depression is a real problem. We must not deny its complexity. And if you are a sufferer of depression this morning, you are not defined by that sorrow. You are not defined by depression. You see, as, as Christians, we must be certain of this truth. Like We must tattoo this on our hearts and minds, that the gospel shapes our identity more than anything else. We are defined by Christ crucified, risen, coming again, more than anything else. We are more defined by Jesus than we are any sin or any suffering, more than any achievement or success. We are not what we do or what we fail to do. We are defined by what he has done. We are not what we have or what we don't have. We are God's workmanship. We are his beloved. If you are in Christ, he and he alone defines you. Not your struggles, not a diagnosis. Will you hear that this morning? Will you hear the good news of the gospel that we sang earlier that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, no heights, 
No depths, no sin, no sickness, no circumstances, no wave or bout of depression can separate you from God's love. You are not defined by anything but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness alone. That is the truest thing about you today. And because we are not defined by depression, here's the good news. We can fight for joy. Because we're not defined by it. Our identity is not a diagnosis. We can fight for joy every day in Jesus Christ. I want to close with this. We fight for joy not in our strength, but in his. Our way of fighting is to hide behind Jesus who fights for us. As we take hold of his grace and of his mercy that he makes available to us. We don't fight with, in our own strength, we fight behind Jesus who fights for us. And we fight with the graces and the mercy that he makes available to us every day. I want you to know that Jesus Christ provides grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for sinners and sufferers. He literally lives right now. Do you believe Jesus lives? He literally lives right now as your great high priest, as a sympathetic savior, providing the daily grace that you need as a sinner and as a sufferer. There are common graces that he gives. The Bible tells us that he provides us with everything that we need for life and godliness. There are common graces that he gives. If you suffer from depression, he gives common graces. That means things that he's just preloaded into the creation that everybody can access because he's a good God. He gives common graces if you're a sufferer from depression. Things like good humor can make you laugh. A funny movie. (laughs) It can help you. It's a common grace. Good food. Meaningful work. Walks, naps, exercise. There's one author that I read this week who's not even a Christian who calls these things antidepressants. And he says, we should access these antidepressants that exist in creation. They help us. He's not even, he's acknowledging these common graces that God has put in the world. And there's more. There's things like therapy and counseling and medication that are gifts from God that can help you He's sustaining you by his grace. If you take a pill every day, that pill is not your savior. That that pill is a gift from your savior that you take every day and you say, God, thank you for your sustaining grace that helps me today. You are my savior and this is a gift from you. He's a gracious savior. He provides grace upon grace. But it's not just common graces that he gives us as we fight for joy, as we let Jesus fight for us. There are special graces that he gives to you if you are a Christian that nobody else has access to. And if you're not here this morning, and you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, in Christ and Christ alone do you have access to these special graces that he gives as we make our way through the storms of life. What are those special graces? Well, his word, his scripture, it's chalked full of promises to us. Spurgeon said that he called the, the promises of God and scripture, he called them ointment to his sorrowful soul. That's what he said. His wife talks about how Spurgeon would would write verses and pin them all over their house so that he would wake up in the morning when his soul was sorrowful and he would claim the promises of God. We have the scriptures. We have songs and hymns and spiritual songs that God has given to us as special graces for those of you who are depressed. Uh, Luther, it's, 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 um, it's well documented. Luther says that he would sing his way through sorrows by singing the Psalms. He would sing the Psalms. There's so many more. He's given us the gift of community and fellowship. He's given us the gift of gathered worship. And perhaps the most tangible gift of all, the Lord's Supper. 
that he tells us to take week by week the Lord's Supper given as a grace for sinners and sufferers where we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Even if we don't feel it, we taste it. God is good. Christ crucified for me. Where we can remember the sufficiency of Christ for us even when we're struggling to believe it. Something that we don't urge, something that we come forward and we receive. What a Savior we have who, def- who defines us who defends us, who died for us, who defeated us, who defeated all the, all the things that plague us through his resurrection and who will come again. We're going to respond by turning to him and singing. We're going to respond. If you're a Christian, we're going to come to the table and receive the special grace of communion here in a minute. Pastor Rick's going to lead us through communion instructions. If you're not a Christian this morning, I'll be in the back. I'd love to pray with you and help you meet Jesus. Let's turn to him together. Let's pray. Lord, we trust in your steadfast love. We thank you for your great love for us and the artifact of that love, which is your son crucified and risen. We rejoice in your salvation. We thank you that there is no salvation outside of you, but yet with you, God, there is salvation in every way. God, we respond in singing because of what you've done for us, how gracious you've been to us and how you sustain us by your grace. And in this time of response, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember and to recall and to receive all that you have done for us. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.